TED Audio Collective. You know what I did over the holiday break in 2021 and 2019 and 2018? A 10-day silent meditation. I know it sounds outrageous being silent for 10 days. I mean, speaking to nobody, no books, no strenuous exercise, no writing, just meditating and being in your own head. Sounds terrifying, doesn't it? And I never thought I would do something like this. But to be honest, I need it. It really helps me recharge. It clears my mind, preparing me for the year ahead. It helps me focus more on what really matters in my life. And with the distractions we have on a daily basis, meditation has taught me how to direct my attention to the right places at the right time. This is one thing that works for me, but there are so many other strategies for sharpening our focus and refining our attention. So how can we pay more attention to our attention? I'm Madupak and Ola. This is TED Business. We've all been there, sitting in class or in a meeting, knowing we need to focus but getting distracted by the constant pings of our phones, the grocery list, what's for dinner tonight. Stop! Pay attention, we tell ourselves. But it's hard, and our brains don't always listen. So why do our minds wander in those moments anyway? Luckily, our speaker today can tell us. Amishi Jha is a neuroscientist who studies the attention systems in our brains. And in this talk, she shares some insight on the inner workings of our brains and how to help it pay attention to the things that really matter. Then after the talk, I'll share a few strategies that have worked for me and how mindfulness practices just might help you become a better colleague. But first, a quick break. This show is brought to you by Schwab. With Schwab Investing Themes, it's easy to invest in ideas you believe in, like artificial intelligence, big data, robotic revolution, and more. Choose from over 40 themes. Buy as is or customize the stocks in a theme to fit your goals. Learn more at schwab.com slash thematic investing. Hey, TED Business listeners, we're supported by our friends at Working Smarter, a new podcast from Dropbox exploring the exciting potential of AI in the workplace. Working Smarter talks with founders, researchers, and engineers about the things they're building and the problems they're solving with the help of the latest AI tools. Tools that can save them time, improve collaboration, and create more space for the work that matters most. On Working Smarter, hear practical discussions about what AI can do so that you can work smarter, too. Listen to Working Smarter on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Or visit workingsmarter.ai. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance, too, with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. 
Add a little curiosity into your routine with TED Talks Daily, the podcast that brings you a new TED Talk every weekday. In less than 15 minutes a day, you'll go beyond the headlines and learn about the big ideas shaping your future. Coming up, how AI will change the way we communicate, how to be a better leader, and more. Listen to TED Talks Daily wherever you get your podcasts. Consider the following statement. Human beings only use 10% of their brain capacity. Well, as a neuroscientist, I can tell you that while Morgan Freeman delivered this line with the gravitas that makes him a great actor, this statement is entirely false. The truth is, human beings use 100% of their brain capacity. The brain is a highly efficient, energy-demanding organ that gets fully utilized and even though it is at full capacity being used, it suffers from a problem of information overload. There's far too much in the environment than it can fully process. So to solve this problem of overload, we have the brain's attention system. Attention allows us to notice, select, and direct the brain's computational resources to a subset of all that's available. We can think of attention as the leader of the brain, Wherever attention goes, the rest of the brain follows. In some sense, it's your brain's boss. And over the last 15 years, I've been studying the human brain's attention system. In all of our studies, I've been very interested in one question. If it is indeed the case that our attention is the brain's boss, is it a good boss? Does it actually guide us well? And to dig in on this big question, I wanted to know three things. First, How does attention control our perception? Second, why does it fail us, often leaving us feeling foggy and distracted? And third, can we do anything about this fogginess? Can we train our brain to pay better attention, to have more strong and stable attention in the work that we do in our lives? So, I wanted to give you a brief glimpse into how we're going to look at this, a very poignant example of how our attention ends up getting utilized. And I want to do it using the example of somebody that I know quite well. He ends up being part of a very large group of people that we work with for whom attention is a matter of life and death. Think of medical professionals or firefighters or soldiers or Marines. This is the story of a Marine captain, Captain Jeff Davis. And the scene that I'm going to share with you is not about his time in the battlefield. He was actually on a bridge in Florida. But instead of looking at the scenery around him, seeing the beautiful vistas and noticing the cool ocean breezes, he was driving fast and contemplating driving off that bridge. And he would later tell me that it took all of everything he had not to do so. You see, he'd just returned from Iraq. And while his body was on that bridge, his mind, his attention, was thousands of miles away. He was gripped with suffering. His mind was worried and and preoccupied and had stressful memories and really dread for his future. And I'm really glad that he didn't take his life. Because he, as a leader, knew that he wasn't the only one that was probably suffering. Many of his fellow Marines probably were, too. And in the year 2008, he partnered with me in the first-of-its-kind project that actually allowed us to test and offer something called mindfulness training to active-duty military personnel. But before I tell you about what mindfulness training is or the results of that study, I think it's important to understand how attention works in the brain. 
So what we do in the laboratory is that many of our studies of attention involve brainwave recordings. In these brainwave recordings, people were funny-looking caps that are sort of like swimming caps that have electrodes embedded in them. These electrodes pick up the ongoing brain electrical activity, and they do it with millisecond temporal precision. So we can see these small yet detectable voltage fluctuations over time. And doing this, we can very precisely plot the timing of the brain's activity. About 170 milliseconds after we show our research participants a face on the screen, we see a very reliable, detectable brain signature. It happens right at the back of the scalp, above the regions of the brain that are involved in face processing. Now. This happens so reliably and so on cue as the brain's face detector that we've even given this brainwave component a name. We call it the N170 component, and we use this component in many of our studies. It allows us to see the impact that attention may have on our perception. So I want to give you a sense of the kind of experiments that we actually do in the lab. We would show participants images like this one. You should see a face and a scene overlaid on each other. And what we do is we ask our participants, as they're viewing a series of these types of overlaid images, to do something with their attention. On some trials, we'll ask them to pay attention to the face, and to make sure they're doing that, we ask them to tell us by pressing a button if the face appeared to be male or female. On other trials, we ask them to tell us what the scene was: was it indoor or outdoor? And in this way, we can manipulate attention and confirm that the participants were actually doing what we said. Our hypotheses about attention were as follows: If attention is indeed doing its job and affecting perception, maybe it works like an amplifier. And what I mean by this is that when we direct attention to the face, it becomes clearer and more salient. Right? It's easier to see. But when we direct it to the scene, the face becomes barely perceptible as we process the scene information. So what we wanted to do is look at this brainwave component of face detection, the N170, and see if it changed at all as a function of where our participants were paying attention to the scene or the face. And here's what we found: we found that when they paid attention to the face, the N170 was larger, and when they paid attention to the scene, it was smaller. What it tells us is that attention, which is really the only thing that changed since the images they viewed were identical in both cases, attention changes perception, and it does so very fast, within 170 milliseconds of actually seeing a face. In our follow-up studies, we wanted to look to see what would happen. How could we perturb or diminish this effect? And our hunch was that if you give people or put people in a very stressful environment, if you distract them with disturbing negative images, images of suffering and violence, sort of like what you might see on the news, unfortunately, that doing this might actually affect their attention. And that's indeed what we found. If we present stressful images while they're doing this experiment, this gap of attention shrinks; its power diminishes. So, in some of our other studies, we wanted to see: okay, great. Not great, actually. Bad news that stress does this to the brain, but if it is the case that stress has this powerful influence on attention through external distraction, what if we don't need external distraction? What if we distract ourselves? And to do this, we had to basically come up with an experiment in which we could have people generate their own mind wandering. This is having off-task thoughts while we're engaged in an ongoing task of some sort. And the trick to mind wandering is that essentially you bore people. So hopefully there's not a lot of mind wandering happening right now. 
When we bore people, people happily generate all kinds of internal content to occupy themselves, right? So we devised what might be considered one of the world's most boring experiments. All the participants saw were a series of faces on the screen, one after another. They pressed the button every time they saw the face. That was pretty much it. Well, the one trick was that sometimes the face would be upside down, and it would happen very infrequently. On those trials, they were told just to withhold the response. Pretty soon, we could tell that they were successfully mind-wandering because they pressed the button when that face was upside down. So we wanted to know here, what happens when people have mind-wandering? And what we found was that, very similar to external stress and external distraction in the environment, internal distraction, our own mind-wandering, also shrinks the gap of attention. It diminishes attention's power. So what do all of these studies tell us? They tell us that attention is very powerful in terms of affecting our perception. Even though it's so powerful, it's also fragile and vulnerable. And things like stress and mind-wandering diminish its power. But that's all in the context of these very controlled laboratory settings. What about in the real world? What about in our actual day-to-day life? What about now? Where is your attention right now? To kind of bring it back, I'd like to make a prediction about your attention for the remainder of my talk. You're up for it? Here's the prediction. You will be unaware of what I'm saying for four out of the next eight minutes. <laughs> It's a challenge, so pay attention, please. Now, why am I saying this? I'm surely going to assume that you're going to remain st- seated and you know, grac- graciously keep your eyes on me as I speak. But a growing body of literature suggests that we mind-wander, we take our mind away from the task at hand, about 50% of our waking moments. These might be small little trips that we take away, private thoughts that we have. And when this mind-wandering happens, it can be problematic. Now, I don't think there'll be any dire consequences with you all sitting here today, but imagine a military leader missing four minutes of a military briefing, or a judge missing four minutes of testimony, or a surgeon or firefighter missing any time. The consequences in those cases could be dire. So one question we might ask is, why do we do this? Why do we mind-wander so much? Well, part of the answer is that our mind is an exquisite time-traveling master. It can actually time-travel very easily. If we think of the mind sort of as the metaphor of a music player, we see this. We can rewind the mind to the past to reflect on events that have already happened, right? Or we can go in fast future to plan for the next thing that we want to do. And we land in this mental time travel mode or the pa- of the past or the future very frequently. And we land there often without our awareness, most times without our awareness, even if we want to be paying attention. Think of just the last time we were trying to read a book, got to the bottom of the page with no idea what, we're, what the words were saying, right? This happens to us. And when this happens, when we mind wander without an awareness that we're doing it, there are consequences. We make errors. We miss critical information sometimes, and we have difficulty making decisions. What's worse is when we experience stress, when we're in a moment of overwhelm, we don't just reflect on the past when we rewind. We end up being in the past ruminating, reliving, or regretting events that have already happened. Or under stress, we fast-forward the mind, not just to productively plan, but we end up catastrophizing or worrying about about events that haven't happened yet and, frankly, may never happen. So at this point, you might be thinking to yourself, okay, mind-wandering is happening a lot. Often it happens without our awareness. 
And under stress, it's even worse. We mind wander more powerfully and more often. Is there anything we can possibly do about this? And I'm happy to say the answer is yes. From our work, we're learning that the opposite of a stressed and, and wandering mind is a mindful one. Mindfulness has to do with paying attention to our present moment experience with awareness and without any kind of emotional reactivity of what's happening. It's about keeping that button right on play to experience the moment-to-moment -moment unfolding of our lives. And mindfulness is not just a concept. It's more like practice. You have to embody this mindful mode of being to have any benefits. And a lot of the work that we're doing, we're offering people programs that give our participants a suite of exercises that they should do daily in order to cultivate more moments of mindfulness in their life. And for many of the groups that we work with, high-stress groups, like I said, soldiers, medical professionals, for them, as I, we know, that mind-wandering can be really dire. So we want to make sure we offer them very accessible, low-time constraints to optimize the training so they can benefit from it. And when we do this, what we can do is track to see what happens, not just in their regular lives, but when we offer it in the most demanding circumstances that they may have. Why do we want to do this? Well, we want to, for example, give it to students right around final season. Or we want to give the training to accountants during tax season, or soldiers and Marines while they're deploying. Why is that? Because those are the moments that, in which their attention is most likely to be vulnerable because of stress and mind-wandering. And those are also the moments in which we want their attention to be in peak shape so they can perform well. So what we do in our research is we have them take a series of attention tests. We track their attention at the beginning of some kind of high-stress interval. And then two months later, we track them again, and we want to see if there's a difference. Is there any benefit of offering them mindfulness training? Can we protect against the lapses in attention that might arise over high stress? So here's what we find. Over a high-stress interval, unfortunately, the reality is if we don't do anything at all, attention declines. People are worse at the end of this high-stress interval than before. But if we offer mindfulness training, we can protect against this. They stay stable, even though, just like the other groups, they were experiencing high stress. And perhaps even more impressive is that if people take our training programs over, let's say, eight weeks, and they fully commit to doing the daily mindfulness exercises that allow them to learn how to be in the present moment, in the present moment, well, they actually get better over time, even though they're in high stress. And this last point is actually important to, to realize, because what it suggests to us is that mindfulness exercises are very much like physical exercise. If you don't do it, you don't benefit. But if you do engage in mindfulness practice, the more you do, the more you benefit. And I want to just bring it back to Captain Jeff Davis. As I mentioned to you at the beginning, his Marines were involved in the very first project of, of, uh, of that we ever did in offering mindfulness training. And they showed this exact pattern, which was very heartening. We had offered them the mindfulness training right before they were deployed to Iraq. And upon their return, Captain Davis shared with us what he was feeling was the benefit of this program. He said that unlike last time, After this deployment, they were much more present. They were discerning. They were not as reactive. And in some cases, they were really more compassionate with the people they were engaging with and each other. He said in many ways, he felt that the mindfulness training program we offered gave them a really important tool to protect against developing post-traumatic stress disorder 
and even allowing it to turn into post-traumatic growth. To us, this was very compelling. And it ended up that Captain Davis and I, you know, this was about a decade ago in 2008, we've kept in touch all these years. And he himself has gone on to continue practicing mindfulness in in a daily way. He was promoted to major. He actually then ended up retiring from the Marine Corps. He went on to get a divorce, to get remarried, to have a child, to get an MBA. And through all of these challenges and transitions and joys of his life, he kept up with his mindfulness practice. And as fate would have it, just a few months ago, Captain Davis suffered a massive heart attack at the age of 46. And he ended up calling me a few weeks ago. And he said, I want to tell you something. I know that the doctors who worked on me, they saved my heart, but mindfulness saved my life. The presence of mind I had to stop the ambulance that ended up taking me to the hospital himself, the clarity of mind he had to notice when there was fear and anxiety happening, but not be gripped by it. He said, for me, these were the gifts of mindfulness. And I was so relieved to hear that he was okay, but really heartened to see that he had transformed his own attention. He went from having a really bad boss, an attention system that nearly drove him off a bridge, to one that was an exquisite leader and guide and saved his life. So I want to actually end by sharing my call to action to all of you. And here it is. Pay attention to your attention. All right? Pay attention to your attention and incorporate mindfulness training as part of your daily wellness toolkit in order to tame your own wandering mind and to allow your attention to be a trusted guide in your own life. Thank you. Apple Card is the perfect cash back rewards credit card. You can earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply. This show is brought to you by Schwab. With Schwab Investing Themes, it's easy to invest in ideas you believe in, like artificial intelligence, big data, robotic revolution, and more. Choose from over 40 themes. Buy as is or customize the stocks in a theme to fit your goals. Learn more at schwab.com slash thematic investing. So how does all of this relate to your business life? Well, there are so many times when we need to refocus and stay really present at work, like when we're giving and receiving feedback. It is so important to be attentive in a feedback session. If you're giving it, you need to be attuned to how the person is reacting. If you're receiving it, you need to stay receptive and open to what you're being told. But if you're only paying attention during four out of the eight minutes when your supervisor or employee is talking, you are likely missing something critical. One of my favorite tricks for getting my mind right focuses on connecting to my body. It's called body scanning. It's pretty simple. 
It's a mindfulness technique that helps you focus your attention on the sensations happening in your body. That's it. So you literally go from head to toe trying to notice the sensations on each part of your body. Is there numbness? Is it tingling? Does something feel cold, warm, prickly? What are those sensations? In other words, body scanning just allows you to tune in and be present. And you know what it also does? It allows you to notice when your mind is wandering and you're not paying attention to your sensations. So when you practice being present with your body, it can teach you how to be present at work because you're better able to notice when your mind is wandering and bring it back to what you need to focus on, like listening to someone's response after you've given them feedback. Because you know sometimes in this situation, your mind is wandering to, oh my gosh, how are they feeling? Are they okay? Did that make sense? Was I clear? Now, feedback is just one example of a situation that demands your attention at work. And mindfulness practices can help you build your capacity to be a better listener, a better colleague, and in my experience, a better person. That's it for today. This episode was produced by Transmitter Media with help from Jordan Bailey and fact-checked by Matias Salas. And special thanks to Anna Phelan, Michelle Quint, Corey Hagem, and Colin Helms. I'm Madhu Bakanola. Talk to you again next week.